Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Empowering Family Caregiver Show on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Meghna Giridhar, your host for today's show sponsored by eCareDiary.com. Today we will discuss caregiving among the incarcerated. And to help shed light on this, I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Tina Mashi. Dr. Mashi is an associate professor at Fordham University Graduate School of Social Service and the recipient of the 2010 Geriatric Social Work Faculty Scholars Award. She has over 25 years of experience working with diverse age groups of survivors of trauma in correctional and community health and social care. She's the president of the National Organization of Forensic Social Work and the executive director of the Be The Evidence Project, which brings light to pressing human rights and social justice issues of our time. Dr. Mashi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Megana. You know, um, as we were discussing before the show started, we um, we shot a sh- brief a video show with you um, at a conference sometime back, which was held in New York. Which and the archived video show is available on our website. But the topic was so compelling that we had to get you back to have a longer discussion about this very, very um, unique but very critical aspect of family caregiving, which has not received a lot of attention mainly because people don't even uh, know about something like this. So um, I want to get right to the questions. Um, And the very first question I had for you was uh, about aging-related issues faced by incarcerated seniors. Can you elaborate a little bit about this? Absolutely. Well, one thing I do want to tell uh, our audience is that the United States is the largest incarcerator of people of any country in the world. Um, we have over 2.3 million people in, in prisons across the United States, of which 16% or 200,000 are aged 50 and older, and many of them with chronic health conditions. And they're in prison, and a smaller percentage are serving life sentences, uh, but a large number are serving long-term prison sentences. And so when you have people aging in general, just think about any of your family members that you have that have uh, that are older and that you're uh, managing the fair family caregiving um, responsibilities. Uh, think about uh, as their health is failing and there's vulnerabilities there. Well, we have a large group in prison, and although they might be age mm-hmm. 50, their health statuses are often age 65. So we're in um, the age of 65, the um, biological age as opposed to chronological age. So they're dealing with um, a, a poor health and in a system that was not trained uh, or developed to be a uh, long-term specialized uh, healthcare facility. So uh, correctional systems are grappling with trying to deal with this aging prison population. Uh, If you're old in prison, you're subject to victimization with increased frailty. There's also a comorbidity Mm -hmm. of health problems with mental health problems. And if anything, it's the thinking about family caregiving, the barriers for family members to get access to their parents or grandparents, it's not as easy as well as to uh, get the support as we know that family caregivers in general don't get that support. Um, it's, there's even more barriers, including the distance that that family member may be from their family. Now, the general perception is that those serving sentences in prisons are, you know, the terms 
that typically people use are violent and dangerous. Um, there are a lot of people who've been sent to prison when they were much younger, and now they've aged and, you know, they're ailing. What happens typically in a prison scenario to people like them? Okay, well, I think part of the perception is is that the majority are not violent and dangerous. Many people are there in prisons for drug offenses, um, and um, less serious offenses. However, the ones with the long-term prison sentences often have uh, these longer sentences, of which for a, a sizable number was for crime that they uh, committed as uh, either juveniles or young adults. Um, and so, so th- this is often referred to as the, the long-term or life um, of course, uh, prisoner in which they're, um, but the, high, the likelihood of them dying in prison uh, is um, is highly probable. And again, it's a it's a system that was not designed to have the health care uh, provision that your hospitals and community would have, and and the the. Um, stresses that it puts on family members when they know they can't get to a family members. I've had people call me from all over the country uh, that they can't get access to their family member who's dying of cancer. Um, but I do think there's special considerations that we need to take that group into account. And th- most of the thing about the older people is they have a low risk of recidivism. And, and, and actually many of them that are healthy or not or some degree of health, but at least uh, have cognitive capacity, actually serve as very positive role models for the older in uh, the younger people in prison, in which they can, ch- if they figured out a way to rehabilitate, um, reconcile their crimes, to actually do good uh, with other people in prison by helping people, and or when they get out, that's a group that I think we want to tap. Mm-hmm. Now, you've um, written, um, you know, about pris- uh, programs in prison that use peers as support systems. Can you tell us about this? Oh, yes. <clears throat> Just think about any type of, when there's a service missing in the community, sometimes things spontaneously happen in which uh, there's a grassroots organization around developing something. Uh, and, 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 and the same thing happens in prison. Uh, in which you see sick people in prison, and there's almost a natural occurrence with other inmates beginning to take care of other inmates that they see ailing. Because not everything about someone's behavior that sends them to prison defines who they are or who they can become. And so many of the people uh, that are in prison want to respond and help uh, those that are in prison. And they also observe a lot when they see the um, sometimes uh, staff who are in this highly stressful environment of prison uh, don't make the best decisions in terms of uh, practices. Um, and so, uh, or they do. Some, you know, some places have formed programs, but um, they observe staff not treating people, in some cases not treating people to the best that they could, and then other innovative responses, such as the California Men's Colony or the Unit for Cognitively Impaired in New York City that takes care of, uh, they both take care of people with dementia, um, in which they incorporate professionals who are well-trained in providing the 
provision of services needed for the family, but they also have recruited um, these peer supports or other inmates who are helping other inmates. And I recommend to your audience to either go on Amazon.com and watch the film Serving Life or YouTube clips, um, Mm -hmm. which is a publicly readily available film, to see the transformation that happens to these peer supports in which in which they are actually rehabilitated by caring for the sick and dying somehow has had a transformative effect in which it reawakens their compassion for other people and of being of service to people. Uh, Many of Mm -hmm. those of us who are family caregivers, it's universal, where that giving of yourself to others has this very positive curative effect even on the carer. And that's that's totally fascinating. And, you know, the fact that there are programs, we've heard of programs like this, even within general society, it's 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 something that people are just getting familiar with. So, um, you know, I, at the end of the show, uh, once we upload your show and make it available to our audience, I will include the links that you've mentioned so we can, um, you know, people can get more information about the situation that you've just elaborated on. Um, our next question is about... Um, family caregiving issues. What kind of issues come up when one member um, could be the most important member of the family and especially an older person um, is incarcerated? Um, Could you tell us about a situation such as this, which I'm sure comes up quite often? Yes, and if I could just say to the audience to put yourself in the shoes of any time your grandparent or parent has been in any kind of facility, whether that be a nursing home or short-term stay in the hospital, um, and the kinds of barriers that you might have experienced because sometimes there may not be a doctor available um, or uh, they want to move your loved one to another location that's not easy for you to access in your busy schedule. Those similar things happen to family members as well. Uh, And this would be uh, children, adult children, as well as grandchildren um, who are experiencing this. Now, if you're older in prison, and a lot of times you're not placed close to home, uh, and if you have an as, as that older person in prison is aging, so is the family members. So those family members can become incapacitated, unable to visit their um, older um, person in their family. But I do also want to just briefly mention is that we have family constellations of all kinds in which you could have an older person on the outside with a younger child or grandchild in prison. So I do want to make note of that that they're all different constellations. We're just focusing on when there's one person older. Um, Mm -hmm. So that the stress is separated from the parents and also seeing, uh, I just think that there's always questionable activities by service providers in almost any setting. And because prisons are a highly stressful environment, one of the things is that I think that there are some professionals that lose touch with their own compassion itself and might say things if they revisited that they might regret. Uh, For instance, when I have Mm -hmm. a a quote from the data that I collected for my older adult study uh, that uh, of older people in prison, where the one of the men reported overhearing a staff members uh, who there was a dying man in the prison hospice uh, who said didn't he die yet? I want to go home. 
Now, first of all, that mm-hmm. statement, we really want to think about if we're in a professional role. But the thing is, it was overheard by the young grandchildren in the hall who were there to see their loved one. And he just saw those two children sob. And so the ramifications of that, and, and I can't really think of any more exemplar of the the grief, the sadness, the uh, suffering of family members, and it sometimes gets exacerbated by uh, staff that that are in these highly stressful environments like prisons. You know, this is this actually, uh, Dr. Mashi leads me to the next question. Um, while I was researching this project um, or this topic, I. Um, read about compassionate medical and um, geriatric prisoner release laws in the U.S. And it was very interesting, and I thought it was very relevant to this topic. I wasn't even aware of um, such laws existing um, in the country as of now, and I would like you to share some information about what these laws are about and um, what are the consequences, current, you know, what is the current situation um, as per the laws um, in the U.S. right now? I'm talking about the geriatric prisoner release laws. Can you share some information, please? Absolutely. I, I want to start with an Einstein quote. And it, it, it basically he says in this quote, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that we can have all the laws in the, on the books, but if we don't have the spirit of tolerance in the population, then those laws mean nothing. Okay, so basically laws and policies are driven by public attitudes. And so those policies come into, and laws come into place. And if we have, uh, in the last 20 years since the 1980s, that led up to the proliferation of aging people in prison, we had a stricter swing towards punishment policies where these long-term sentences were given out. But there's been other times in history we've had more compassionate approaches to rehabilitating those that have lost their way um, and committed a crime. Um, and some, based on that, they, they had no money to get food and they made a choice to commit a crime to try to resolve their issues. Um, and so with these compassionate policies, there's been some trickling in of about 48 states have these laws and and that come in. So this idea of compassion comes back in as opposed to punishment. Now, the, mm-hmm. so compassionate release is often for those individuals, regardless of age, that have uh, a, a serious terminal illness in which they've been diagnosed, they've been designated having six months to live. Okay, so that was where the compassion or medical parole. So they have some medical issue that actually... They're they're incapacitated, and and basically says we keep them in prison, and it gives an outlet, a funneling out to let them out. Now, where it varies with geriatric, it might be based on age, and some states may vary. Where I'm actually in Vermont right now, so at age mm-hmm. 16 older is um, where you have um, you can get out if with a nonviolent offense. There, there's some specification. So if you, you could be in a healthy condition or whatever, but you get out based on age. Um, so, but the problem is, is that a lot of times these laws are not used. Even though the family puts the paperwork in, uh, there's a lot of red tape, um, bureaucracy, but also the public attitudes towards letting 
people out of prison, a fear of public safety despite evidence mm-hmm. that says this group is more than less likely to commit a crime. And the thing is, is that when you have someone who's incapacitated that cannot do anything and they actually might even be in a coma, um, you, you, know, you have to ask yourself, can they really do anything? And do we want to support practices where we actually chain the dying to beds? It's been found in places in the United States and it's documented from the 1980s that are within hours of dying. Mm-hmm. Now, what and, should and we as a... I want to ask yourself, sorry, in, general, in general, mm-hmm. do you think that that's acceptable? Just think about any person mm-hmm. in general, and if that was your family member, is this acceptable right. or something that you would want? So what should we as a society of family caregivers and community citizens know about this? What are like the critical aspects? This was like the broad overview. This is about the release laws, but as citizens ourselves, what are some of the key elements that we should know? I, well, first of all, I... Um, I think we need to reawaken, I have an article I have under review, co-constructing community. We need to reawaken in us that we are all interconnected. We are part of a community. We are a human family in one way or another. Some people are in our closer family circles and some people are on the outer circles. And when one person is hurting, we are in all in one, not one way or another hurting. There's so many stories with the older people in prison have told me that we can stop this from happening where they end up uh, committing a crime, such as treating sexual victimization when when people are young. So if we can just Mm -hmm. be aware of and take care of one another, um, and and also what is common across us all, and and I and doing this work with older people in prison. I've worked in corrections for 25 years. But something about this older group and and our wise elders that are imprisoned wise elders, I came to deduce it's very simple. To me, what is universal? It's all about love and family. That's Mm -hmm. something we all have in common. And, And will we give it to everybody, including those that have done something wrong? And if they do mm-hmm. get to the point of repenting um, and want to make amends and contribute back to creating that community and helping to rehabilitate other people involved in the criminal justice system, will we help them? Absolutely. What a, what a, what a key question. And I'm sure if all of us look within ourselves, we would actually know the answer, which is it's, it's very clear and simple. Um, when it comes down to action, though, Dr. Mashi, what can you suggest that what could we do about this um, in our own little way? I, I, and my thought would be, what what is possible for all of everyone to do based on all their their given responsibilities? Um, recognize that um, self care for oneself, I think, is an important fact. Knowing yourself, knowing your attitudes about. Mm-hmm. What, how we should take care of our elders in society. And and if you have compassion for um, your family members or other uh, friends that we know that have a sick uh, family member, think about that. And think about also then extending that to older people who some of these people may be your neighbors that have this older 
person, a grandparent, parent mm-hmm. in prison, and um, it, it, it share that in in. It, have conversations at your dinner table. Let your po- policymakers know that you support any uh, fa- family caregiver um, support services because really policy should be centered around families, not individuals, and they should be intergenerational. It is that we include equity for everyone in all kinds of families, and that's heterosexual families, gay families, and would include families in which a member is incarcerated um, because without it we're adding to the problem by not also being socially responsible if you really feel compelled you could do um, write letters to people in prison you can go to any of your statewide Department of Corrections and you could actually look up people often by age who's in corrections um, you also um, can get involved in volunteer work and provide mentoring for people coming out of prison. Um, and, and so just being of service. And again, if it's too much beyond your what you're doing at home, it's just when you're taking care of your family member and you see them suffering, just think about those other families too. And, and which, you know, to me, it's, it, it's an internal um, transformation as well as external behaviors. Wish them well. And, and um, uh, you know, send them positive energy to help them also deal with um, a similar, universal, human family plight. Thank you, Dr. Mashi. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest today. Um, you know, the information you've provided is, has, is truly invaluable, and I'm sure um, our audience members got a deeper insight on how um, caregiving issues among the incarcerated, what, what a vital topic it is. Not, it's not a topic that you just read about. It could affect any one of us or any one of our near and dear ones. And thank you also for suggesting um, steps that we could take um, in simple, in, you know, in our day-to-day living to hopefully, um, you know, make this a better, better place for everyone um, in society. Um, I want to let our audience members know um, that they can get more information about you and your project at www.bbevidence.org. I'll repeat that. It's www.bbevidence.org. I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in today. And I would like us all to join us next time on Tuesday, July 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern for our next Empowering Family Caregiver show. We will be talking to Rachel Codenas, speaker, coach, and author of Living with Loss, One Day at a Time. To learn more about eCare Diary and our upcoming shows, visit www.ecarediary.com. Registration is free and gives you immediate access to your personal care diary tool. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. My Twitter address is ecare underscore diary. Thank you, Dr. Mashi, once again, and thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful thank, afternoon. Thank you very much, and well wishes to everybody out there.